morning. Uh, I'm Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'll be speaking this morning. Um, you quick announcements, quick. Yeah, as you're perusing all the different sign-up sheets down the info table, that you'll see two more things uh, on either end. Uh, one of them is this little two-sided flyer right here. This has a listing of all the different hi, um, all the different uh, study groups that are coming up uh, this coming fall. So study groups, uh, usually starting in September, they are kind of short-term opportunities to connect with other people. Usually these happen on a semester basis, so September to December, February to May, that kind of thing. Um, usually centered around a specific topic, um, uh, geographical location, people, whatever it may be. We've got 10 or 11 of these things starting up. Some of them are kind of restarting up from last year. I encourage you to check those out, take a look. Those are on the website as well. You can sign up on the website. Uh, there's not a physical sign up for these things back there currently, but you can sign up on the website if you don't know how to do that. Just send me an email of the group you'd be interested in being a part of. Most of those are starting in September. Uh, that's one way that you can uh, engage in discipleship together here at ACFIT. We believe that discipleship is uh, a communal journey. It is not an individual thing. One of the ways is by gathering together in those groups. Uh, in addition to that flyer, you'll see this. This is a discipleship handbook. We came out with one of these last fall. This is the kind of the 2.0 that the discipleship team has been working on over the last several months. Uh, new and improved, smaller sliders in your Bible, take it with you. This offers this kind of practical, um, kind of what we think discipleship looks like, how you can engage in it in your daily life, and especially uh, if you want to be a part of a group. You know, we have these study groups that are short-term things you can be engaged in. We also have what we call life groups, which the vision for those is a more long-term, more kind of integrated into your lives, more deep level of discipleship with one another. That might be a group of 8 to 12 people, like a couple of families, individuals, whatever, gathered uh, weekly, monthly. It might be three to four of you. It might be a one-on-one mental relationship. It might meet here at the church. It might meet in a home. It might meet at a bowling alley or in the bleachers during your kids' game practice. Whatever it may be, these can look incredibly flexible. We're not trying to box in exactly what that means. And we don't have a bunch of life groups listed. What we're trying to do is, is equip and encourage you to go and, and do your own, to start with the people in your life, to be out in your life, which we're going to talk about a little bit more today in the sermon, uh, engaging in discipleship in the places that you're normally inhabiting, the existing rhythms and relationships. But in this, you'll find kind of general guidance as to things we think life you ought to incorporate, how to get one started, who you should be talking to, etc., as well as in the back. Uh, resources, uh, podcast books, Bible study resources that you can use on that journey. So, grab one of these, grab one of these, take them with you. Uh, if you grab one of these on the top of the information desk, they have these tucked into it, so don't double dip. You dare not double dip, all right? Um, just be aware of that, but then there's also a stack of this seed as well. On the back of this, you'll find um, the QR code and link to uh, our discipleship podcast, which has been going on for uh, a couple months now. Uh, we're 16 or 17 episodes in. Um, that is where weekly I sit down and have a conversation with someone from our church uh, about what discipleship looks like for them, you know, what following Jesus practically in their lives looks like. The, the, the goal of that podcast is just to get to know different individuals from our church um, and also to just kind of be mutually inspired. Um, and, and encouraged in our walk, you might hear something from 
uh, somebody else to challenge you, give you an idea of how you could practically be following Jesus in your life, whatever it may be, hopefully challenges you in some of your thinking and your practices. So, encourage you to check that out on Spotify, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Um, one last thing to tie this all together, uh, and you'll see if you just notice on that, uh, on August 31st, uh, the Disciples team is going to be hosting, this is a Thursday night at 6.30, uh, the Disciples team is hosting uh, training and equipping night. Uh, if you are going to be in a life group or a study group, if you're leading one, if you're thinking about leading one, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you want to grow with others in following Jesus in this season of your life, we invite you to come to that. We're going to be talking about the many facets of that, having some stories, having some, you know, training bits on, you know, how to effectively lead a group, uh, time for some breakout sessions and stuff. That'll be about an hour and a half. Child care will be provided. Dessert will be provided. Uh, we invite you to come and be a part of that as we kick off this season uh, and press into, hopefully, a holistic vision of the discipleship here at age six. Uh, okay, no more announcements. I'm going to preach now. I'm excited to do that. But if you would you join me in prayer as we get into that portion. Jesus, I pray that uh, my words would be your words, um, that the Spirit would speak to all of us as, uh, as you would want to today, Lord. And we would have ears to hear. We would have hearts open to receive. Uh, this whole thing that we're doing this morning, um, first and foremost, is to give you glory, is to worship you, is to claim and affirm uh, inside of each other and, and of ourselves who you are, who you are in the world, who you are for us. We also recognize that in that, in worshiping and beholding you, that we are changed as people, that your presence is with us here, and your presence can't do anything but transform uh, who we are. So may you transform us through the hearing of your word, uh, through the sermon, through our praises, through our prayers, through our interactions with one another. And we thank you for being with us this morning. Love you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, in preparing for this sermon, I uh, was reading this book. I highly recommend it. It's been the best book I've read in the past three years called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And I know that just by the virtue of that title alone, you guys are all getting on Amazon right now on your smartphones to buy it. But hang with me. I know how exciting that sounds. Uh, this, this book uh, transformed how I saw and understood uh, the early church and, and a lot of the things about them. Uh, they were a wild bunch. Um, some of the things that are a little relevant to us that, that really stuck out to me about the early church in reading this book um, primarily was how rigorous and rigid and intense they were about practically following Jesus, literally just obeying his teachings. If you were uh, an inquirer, if you were interested in Jesus and you came to the church and said, I want to know more about this, uh, you would enter what was called a process of catechesis, which was this in-depth teaching of both the, what the church believes and how the church practices. This process for people would go on sometimes for like two or three years before they could be baptized. You know, we read, you know, Acts chapter 8 in Ethiopia and Munich, and, and they find water and they say, here's water, just dump me on in there, let's do this thing. And, you know, if, if someone came forward here at Ace Pick and were like, I'm interested in being baptized, we would say, we would celebrate, we would say, that's great, we would not probably say, all right, let's check back in in two or three years when you feel like you've really gotten a handle on what we believe, what it means to follow Jesus. We want to make sure you know what this entails. 
They took this seriously to the point where, before you were baptized, if you were a catechumen, if you were in this process of learning, you weren't even allowed to participate in all of worship. They had a two-hour worship service. You'd make through the first hour, and then they'd say, all right, all the newbies out the back door, we're going to take communion now. We'll see ya. Intense, right? Really intense. These people were wild. They, they, they did not, you know, all the things that we are taught to do to make our churches more, you know, uh, sensitive to those walking in the doors and seeing Jesus say the opposite of those things, right? They said, we'll see you in two or three years. No communion for you yet. They did not put, believe it or not, in the Roman Empire, they were persecuting them hostily. They were not putting signs out on the side of the road advertising the times of the Sunday services. You had to, like, know somebody who knew somebody to find out when Christians were worshiping in your city. Uh, this book also talks, as it goes on, about the Emperor Constantine, um, who famously, uh, Constantine was the one who kind of began the process of popularizing Christianity as the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. It's a really significant paradigm shift from, you know, the Roman Empire persecuting Christians uh, very systematically over centuries. Uh, to, you know, Constantine had a type of conversion experience and began to promote Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. It didn't really take for another, like, couple decades. He died. The, the, the emperor after him was a Stephanic Christian. But by the end of that century, he won out and Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. But Constantine, interestingly, he was interested. He, uh, he was taught a lot of the Christian faith by Christian leaders at the time, but he was not baptized until his deathbed. He waited until the very end of his life to be baptized. By all accounts, a sincere guy, by all accounts, a guy who was very interested in Christianity, he waited until the end to be baptized. Why was this? Uh, this actually was, you know, not that uncommon of a thing in, in the, you know, in that era, especially as we went on into the later Roman era and the Catholic era of the church. For some folks, there was this idea that uh, baptism you know, kind of gave you some type of a special cleansing of your skin, right? And that you kind of wanted to get baptized as close to the end of your life as you could, because if you got baptized, you had this special cleansing of skin, and then you go on and, and you screw up for another couple weeks and years. It kind of undoes that work, right? It cancels that out. So I think it's probably a faulty vision of baptism, but nonetheless. Uh, for some folks, they would wait and have these deathbed conversions for that reason. I actually don't think that that's why Constantine waited, uh, necessarily. Uh, that's not what Alan Crider thinks about why Constantine waited. Um, I think, and Eusebius and these other people back then, historians think so too, that, like, you know, Constantine knew that if he was to be baptized, if he was going to be confirmed into the church, then what was going to happen? Of course, he was going to be held to the standards of practices, of morality, etc., that all the other Christians were held to. Not so much necessarily with the concern of, like, I'm going to lose my salvation, I'm going to go to hell. That might have been in his mind. But more so, it was like, to be a Christian at that time was not to ascribe this set of beliefs. It was to live out this, this rigorous practice, this moral living in the sight of the world, to engage in these in these, you know, mutual accountability. And he's the emperor of the Roman Empire, right? How could he walk into this, you know, egalitarian worship service where slaves and, and market owners and, and emperors were all in the same playing field and all calling each other out on their sins? Constantine can do that, right? Constantine knew 
what it meant, what it entailed to really be baptized, really make that step of following Jesus, and he was not ready to do it. He was held back. He held himself back because he knew what discipleship entailed. We're going to transition now to Scripture and, and read about someone that reminds me a little bit of Constantine in this. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 17. Uh, you can turn, it's in the screen, you can turn there, we're going to stay there the whole time. You have the Bible, you can, uh, physically, you can even open your phone. You have permission, open it up, look at it, please. Don't take my word for it, uh, what these words are. Um, it's the most disheartening thing of preaching is to say that every time, and then everyone just keeps staring at the screen. It's like, I'm not going to do that, Ryan. It's on the screen. Whatever, it's fine. Between you and the Lord. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, I'm going to start reading. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and said, looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I think the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's start by talking about the man in this story. Uh, some you know, often will hear this man referred to as the rich young ruler, uh, something in the paragraph heading of Scripture, which are not actually from Scripture, we put those in ourselves. Uh, in, in Mark, he's just a rich man. In Matthew, he's young and rich, and in Luke, he is rich and a ruler. And so we kind of conglomerate those three accounts and we get the rich young ruler. But here's just rich, and that is uh, the important piece for us. Um, I'm going to confess I'm a prime here. Uh, maybe it's that I've heard this scripture too much. Uh, maybe it's prejudices that I have, but, but I came into thinking about this passage with a bit of a prejudice against this guy. Maybe an image of, of a rich man coming to Jesus, his nose turned up, coming to him asking about eternal life, like it's one more thing that he can acquire or buy, can add to his resume. I think I'm used to seeing people of, of power and means come to Jesus asking bad faith questions. 
trying to test him, get something other than Jesus from Jesus. Um, I come in with that prejudice against this guy. But, but if we read carefully and we read slowly, we, we'll see really quickly that that's not who this guy is at all, right? How did he come to Jesus, right? He comes, we read, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Mark and Luke don't necessarily depict it that way, or Matthew and Luke don't, but in Mark, this man is, is running up to him, falling on his knees, not a haughty, rich man, a man who is, is reverent before Jesus, a man who is desperate. Desperate for what? He says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, of course, can never just answer a question directly to save his life, right? And as a quick aside, that can be the election to all of us, whether we're seeking God's will, discerning through prayer, looking for the answer, whatever it may be. You know, it's easy to get frustrated, it's easy to get impatient, because we're asking this question over here, and Jesus insists on answering this question over here. So you're not even asking another question. Or maybe he answers our question with a question. He says, this is actually what you should be asking, right? Uh, it can get frustrated. That's just an aside to say, it's okay, we've all been there, this guy's been there. Uh, it's how Jesus be sometimes, you know? But in this case, Jesus answers the question with a question. The guy asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts, just like being the grammar police and picking apart the sentence a little bit, the vocab police, I guess. He, he, says, he says, why do you call me good? Is his answer, his question in response to the guy's question. And the guy's kind of like, I don't know, man. I was just trying to be polite, all right? Mr. Teacher, I don't know, what do you want from me? So Jesus is probing, he's pushing in a little bit, he's getting to the heart of things, right? The intent behind the question. Why do you call me good? Nobody is good except God alone. We might hear that nobody is good, not even you. Right? Then Jesus, in a seeming non sequitur, just starts to lift off like over half of the things man, well, half of the things man, technically, you know, all the later ones having to do with how you treat others, right? You just start lifting off commandments. Uh, you know, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud. For whatever reason you take, don't covet, which is in the commandments, and turns it into defraud here, or replaces it with that. We don't know why defrauding means to take money and resources from others to dishonest means. Maybe as a rich guy, this is an issue for him, right? I don't know. Uh, anyway, Jesus starts with lifting off these commandments. Perhaps just to say, like, look at these, do all these, and maybe then you can be called good. Maybe he's trying to show him the impossible bar that he can't meet here. But the guy kind of just, you know, interrupts Jesus answering all these commandments and says, Teacher, see, he drops the good, he's learning, the smart dude, successful man. All these I have kept since I was a boy. And this is where, if you were I were Jesus, we would call bull on this guy, right? You're right, dude. Really? We might expect that of Jesus here, you know, to say, as if. Do people still say, as if? Is that a thing? Or do you at least know what I'm talking about? I've got about six more years of as if, and then people are like, what is Jesus? It says in verse 21, what does it say? It says, not Jesus scolded him for his pride. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So whatever we might think, whatever I might think of this young, rich ruler of his, of his boast about keeping all of the commandments, 
this man who ran to Jesus and fell down before him, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And hear me on this. Out of that love, Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I always read this as Jesus challenging the man, right? Setting, setting a bar that he couldn't meet. He wanted to drive this guy away, and so he used his Jesus powers and peered into the guy's soul and found the one thing he knew that he wouldn't be able to give up, and he, and he pointed right at that thing. I always imagined Jesus was challenging him like that. But I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. When I read this, I read it now as an invitation, a sincere one. As I ask, how do I gain eternal life? That's the question. And the direct answer to that question is, follow me. Sell all you have and come follow me. Then you'll have eternal life. When we say eternal, when we read eternal in the New Testament, we could take that in, in two different ways. I think we could take it in both ways at the same time. So eternal can mean, eternal can be another word for forever. It can, it can, it can relate to the duration. It means like uh, an infinitely long time, right? But eternal can also describe the quality of life. Eternal life is a type of life that the man could experience in here and now by dipping his stuff and following after Jesus, right? Follow me and have that eternal life now as well as in the future. Jesus was really sincerely inviting him into that. But, as we know in the story, we read that the man's face fell and went away sad because he had great wealth. And I don't know for sure, I'll ask him, but I imagine Jesus was sad too. It says Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. At first blush, you might just think Jesus is dunking on this guy, because he dunks on a lot of people in the gospel, especially rich people, right? Like that would be a fair assumption to make. I don't think that's what's happening here, though. I think, I imagine that he was, he was disappointed. He had invited this guy into full life with him. Jesus doesn't invite everybody. Jesus doesn't even invite most people in the Gospels and the stories to come and follow him. There's many people that have, you know, there's a couple people that have vibrant conversion experiences, and he says, great, now, let's, now go home, buddy. You know, it's not every single person on the countryside who's saying, come follow. He invites this guy, come follow, and the man can't do it. The man wasn't ready to fully follow. The man wanted something to do. The man wanted another commandment to keep, right? He has a handle on that. Let's, let's take him at his word. Let's say he's telling the truth here. He has kept all the commandments since he was a boy. He's been financially successful to boot, right? This is a guy who, who covers his bases, who does the right things, who dots the I's, who crosses the T's. This guy has it together. I'm not saying he means well. When he lays himself at Jesus' feet and asks, what else? Can I do? I've done everything. I've checked every box. Give me one more box to check. Jesus. Jesus says, no. No more stacking of good deeds. No more accomplishments. No more responsible action. Expect that you've done all that. Go sell everything and come follow me. This is about wealth, in a sense, but not, we could do another sermon going in that direction. But not necessarily about wealth in the sense that, you know, our stuff or wealth is evil in and of itself. It's 
because when we're wealthy, we have less need to follow him. For this guy specifically, Jesus says, sell your stuff, not because the stuff is bad, but because your stuff is the one thing that's keeping this guy in place, right? Keeping him stuck, keeping him from following after Jesus. Sell your stuff wasn't the ultimate, shining, final, like, good deed that he could love, right? Selling his stuff is what was keeping him from following it would have been a huge sacrifice for this guy. This is not just emptying your bank account, right? This is leaving behind your entire life, your investments, your property, all you've built and accomplished. Leaving it behind, and the guy can't do it. He'd much rather add another goal, add another activity, check another box, or do another thing. What the man wanted to do, how he was treating Jesus and following him, he wanted to add that to the life that he had already made, right? So I've got a good thing going here. What else could I add in to this that I've done to achieve eternal life? And Jesus says, no. Jesus, listen, Jesus won't be just another agenda item for you, okay? Jesus is not an add-in. Jesus needs to be everything, and he wants everything from you. As we think about discipleship, or that's like a long, scary, difficult to spell word. It's the, it's the worst part of my job is how many times a week I have to type out the word discipleship and how many times it takes me to get it right. That is a big, scary word, but it really simply is just following Jesus and obeying what he says to do. Following Jesus as you can like the man you hear it. You know, as we think about that, it's worth asking ourselves, is discipleship for us in our lives just another activity, just another box that we check. Are we, I don't want to mix the metaphors here, are we keeping Jesus in a box, in a compartment in our lives? What's keeping us from fully following after him? We place ourselves in this story. What would he ask us to do? For you, maybe it is well. You know, Jesus goes on to speak to his disciples about how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And it needs to be said here, there is a real spiritual danger to wealth. There just is. Anytime throughout Scripture when people have enough or more than enough, they stray from God. Every time. And it's true for you. Every time. And for me, every time. Blessed are the poor is not just a nice thing that we can stitch up on the cross-stitch and hang on our walls, right? It's, it's true. Blessed are the poor because in a real way, they are not victims to the spiritual danger of wealth, comfort, leisure, having our needs provided for, especially when it seems like we are providing them, keeping up with the bills, the groceries, able to afford new things and vacations, etc. I'm speaking to myself here. When we can do all that, praise God, so thankful, but, but none of those things are naturally going to drive us to God. None of those things of themselves are going to draw us closer to God and we're providing them for ourselves. The natural thing for us is to be subconsciously stop needing God. There is a spiritual danger to wealth. If this person had been a poor homeless beggar and Jesus said, follow me, the guy would be like, sure, I literally have nothing going for me at all. And nothing, should I take my, you know, should I take, oh wait, I don't have anything. Great, okay, let's go. That would have been the story here. The man would have been on much safer spiritual footing. Not so with the rich person, right? Not so with most of us. This is why we have to continually practice gratitude, 
radical generosity. This is why we have to reckon with the fact that our stuff and our wealth endangers our souls. It's something we have to account for, and maybe for you, for us, maybe to really follow after Jesus to take hold of that eternal life, maybe we do need to start selling. You know, we can be quick to say, well, Jesus wouldn't ask this of everybody. Sure, but he's asking it of more people than we think, right? Anyway, moving on from that. Maybe when counting the cost of following Jesus, it's not so much for the financial cost, but the, the social cost. What if following Jesus, what if being obedient to what Jesus has for you to do and say today is going to cost you relationships? Are you prepared for that? Because if we are truly radically reorienting our lives around Jesus, that's going to cause friction with a lot of people. If your family orients their life around this or that political party and what they espouse, and you sincerely start to follow Jesus, and maybe your maybe your views shift even just a little, uh, that might put you at odds. If the friends of people in your life orient their lives around, you know keeping up with accomplishments and they have their kids and all the activities and they're acquiring this and that new thing and you're not keeping up because you're over here selling, that might cost you. Whatever it is, several times in the gospel, Jesus makes it clear that if you really follow me, it means in some way making a break with your mother, your father, your siblings, the life and the people that you know. Jesus gets to that later on and says, well, that we left all that. We, 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 we lost relationships to follow you. And he said, you'll bring back more of that to you in the life to come, the eternal life I have for you. The fact is, if we want to start walking to the beat of Jesus' drum, we're going to be out of the rhythm with the people around us, right? We just are. The fact is, Jesus wants everything. Jesus wants all of your life. He wants every bit of it. Picking up and following him is costly. The financial cost might hold us back. The social cost might hold us back. Here's another thought I have as I read this. It could be that we're held back from following Jesus because we're too busy with church. It could be that we are held back from following Jesus because we are too busy with church. This one, I think, is really reminiscent of the rich guy here. He said, I kept all the commandments. I do all the things, Jesus. I show up to Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. I'm in a Bible study. I'm tithing. It's ironic to me as we just put out all these calls for sign-ups, and I'm like, please join the group, but we'll talk about that. Uh, all these things I've done since I was a boy. What else can I do? What else can I add in? Are we too busy with all the good things that we're doing? To follow Jesus, maybe in other ways he's asking us to. Here I'm thinking specifically about following him outside of these walls. Following him in that scary place called the real world, right? Our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, whatever it may be. I think of when Paul is in Athens in Acts 17, people come to hear him speak in verse 20, 21, explains the situation. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Our contemporary equivalent might be all the people at such and such church spent their time doing nothing but attending Bible study and listening to Sunday sermons. Is this cutting close-ish? 
maybe for some of us, at some point, at some point, we have to move beyond hearing about Jesus and talking about Jesus and get out there and actually follow Jesus. In our lives, our work with non-believers in the real world, that is where discipleship happens. Amen? I think too about when Jesus visits the home of Mary and Martha, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet in the posture of a disciple, while Martha was distracted by all, quote, distracted by all the preparations that had to be made to get empty and worked up about it. And with the small caveat that having Martha get too bad of a rap in this story, but we can't give her too much time today, Jesus, in response to her, is like, chill, Martha, come sit, be my disciple with Mary. A lot of us in the congregation are thinking, okay, Jesus, but Wednesday dinner isn't going to make itself. All right? I know you're still going to eat this food. The children and youth aren't going to teach themselves. we got stuff to do here, Jesus. And, and fair enough, and serving Jesus, doing stuff for him and for the church is a good thing, but it still can be a thing that ties us up and tracks us. Keeps us too busy to notice the other ways that maybe Jesus wants us to be following Him. Ways that don't qualify as an official church activity. More than that, I think this might be the, the, the bigger danger here. Doing stuff at church might make us doing stuff at church might make us feel like we're following Jesus when we really aren't. Y'all know what placebo is, right? A sugar pill. Might make us feel like we're taking our medicine and following the message happening. We're in this building. We're doing church activities. We're attending the program. Jesus got me three out of four Sundays this month. Look at me. It can make us think we're following, but are we? Certainly none of us are making three or four services a month right now, so we're not in danger of this for a minute. I'm just kidding. You guys are great. Uh, <laughs> it can make us think that we're following, but are we? It's this the sum total of what Jesus asked us to be doing. As a pastor, it's easy for me, I'll turn the spotlight on myself, it's really easy for me to think I'm following Jesus on a given day, because I'm a pastor, right? I literally get paid to follow Jesus, right? Isn't that what I'm doing? But that's the most dangerous placebo of all, trust, trust me. Pray for your pastors, because that's part of the Part of the spiritual danger of being a pastor is that following Jesus becomes in part your job, and that is a dangerous place to be. Pray for us. Following Jesus is not just doing stuff at church, it's not checking off moral boxes, it is a total life commitment, an overhaul, a reorientation. It is selling everything and following Him to the ends of the earth. Amen? And Jesus doesn't want you to take the good life that you've built and just sprinkle a few church activities over it. Active service, Bible study, etc., those are good things. He doesn't want it to be an add-in to your existing life. He wants your whole life. Nothing held back. Jesus is not the sprinkle. I'm not going to follow that metaphor further. It's ridiculous. Do it yourself. He wants everything. So what does this look like for you today? I don't know. <laughs> the Holy Spirit knows. The process of discipleship is responding faithfully to that voice. You have the Spirit of the living God in your heart speaking to you, and, and that Jesus that lives inside of you wants to be claiming a little more territory in your heart every day. And so we need to be obedient to hear that. I can only speak for myself here. The biggest one for me, generally, 
the territory Jesus needs to take is my time. Often, and this applies to everywhere and everybody, but like for me at least, often I just want to be left alone. I don't know if I believe in introvert, extrovert, all that, but for myself, after me in my house, I want to be left alone. <laughs> and I can, and I can extend that to God. I can. I'm, I, part of the reason my job is so dangerous for me is because I'm comfortable with giving Jesus 65% of my life. I'm comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with whatever 100 minus 65% of my life that also going to him. 35? We did it. We did it. Praise Jesus that he is working on me. Praise Jesus. For me, moving towards Jesus means getting my head out of my phone, which I may or may not have dropped in a certain bowl of water this morning and it hasn't been working for about three hours. So, ain't Jesus fun? Won't he do it? I mean, that's not a joke, and I have to go to the Apple Store today. Um, seriously. Uh, for me, it might be getting my head out of my phone. <laughs> Stop pouring my time down that endless, uh, hungry black hole of Netflix slash Apple TV slash Hulu slash Peacock slash Hulu TV. Hulu TV. I thought that was one of them. Uh, I need to accept that my time is not my own and it's not something I just get to spend on myself how I want to. For me, sell all you have would be, you know, erase that list of things you think you need to get done this week or you want to get done this week, this month, this year. I know they're all very important. You're all very, you're a very important person, Ryan, but you need to give that stuff to me. That would be selling all I have. I need to learn that following him is not something I just do from nine to five. Following Jesus is not my billable hours. It's in the morning when I rise, when I get home from work. So the Spirit is at work in my life, continually claiming territory, continually clearing out space for Jesus to speak, to lead me in directions I wouldn't otherwise go, I might not think on my own. Maybe you need some space cleared out, some territory claims. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe that includes church involvement. That's why with discipleship, you know, we're trying to widen the lens of what that means with the sermon, with the whole ministry. You know, it's not just being in a life group, right? It's not just a church program. It's not checking that box while my sacred bank account and my sacred calendar remain untouched. It's all of life. So by all means, join a life group. By all means, start a life group. By all means, mentor somebody. Serve in children and youth on worship in food pantry. Please do these things. But in all these things, what we want to be doing is, is be pushing past the limits of the God box Getting God out of that box, you tend to put him in and recognizing that Jesus, following Jesus involves everything. So you don't, listen, and I'll say it and it'll sound crazy to you, you don't serve food pantry so you can say, great, check. I spent two hours this month caring about the food needs in my community and now I can move on with my life. I get it. That's not what you do food pantry. You serve a food pantry as part of being transformed into someone whose entire life is oriented towards feeding the hungry in your community. Amen? That's why, you know, join a life group, start a life group, but we want to see these life groups that are integrated into your lives. You're eating together, you're sharing together, you're living faithfully in your communities, you're praying for them, you're serving your communities. It's not a, it's not a weekly one-hour Bible study, and then you just need, great, I'm glad we did this. See you again next week. We, we did it. We did cycle Right? 
If that's what it is, I'd rather you not be in a life group. Seriously. That is not what we're looking to do. We are looking to have Jesus in our midst in a powerful way if we need this. All we're trying to do in every area of our life together is not put Jesus in that box. Because if it is not one among us, it's a weekly obligation. It is the whole enchilada, right? And that might sound intimidating, it might sound overwhelming, but I want to remind us, and I want to remind myself as I close here, that this is good news. It is the good news. I mean, what is Jesus saying here? The man asks, how do I have eternal life? He says, come follow me. He's inviting him into eternal life. He's saying, I know that you work hard, and I know that leaving behind what you have is hard. It feels impossibly hard. Don't you want eternal life? Don't you want life that is, is, is full and is abundant and has peace and passes understanding that defies circumstances? Don't you want to have the kind of life that when I created you, I had in mind for you? Don't you want that life? Don't you want your life to be transformed every inch of it? Don't you want light to overwhelm your darkness? Don't you want healing to overcome your illness? Then come and follow me, says Jesus. Sell everything. Good news, buddy. You get to sell everything and come follow me. That's the path to eternal life here and now. It's a blessed invitation. It is, a, it is true medicine for our sick, wealthy souls. Amen. The good news is, the good news is, even if we want to put Jesus in the box, he won't say it. Amen. Jesus will not settle for it. Jesus is coming for everything. Amen? And the journey of discipleship, may we be faithful in it, is just letting Him take a little more territory every day in our lives. And all I want to leave with you today is to know that there is nothing off limits. That's what we signed up for here. Right? Praise God that He is transforming us. He is transforming our lives. And that He wouldn't choose but man we are so blessed that He invites us into that. I want to invite the worship team up as we close. Uh, any pastors that are in the room will come up um, to the front and we'll be happy to pray for you and with you for a couple minutes here. Uh, for the rest of us, as you are comfortable, we invite you to stand and join us in worship. We will close the service.